Welcome to Capital Close-Up. I'm your host, Paul Hodes. We're broadcast on WKXL AM and FM in Concord, New Hampshire, and 101.9 in beautiful downtown Manchester, New Hampshire, where podcast, wherever it is you find your podcasts. If you're listening by podcast, please make sure to subscribe and check out all the podcasts under the Beyond politics podcast banner great shows and we're happy to have so many fans and a growing universe of friends and subscribers well we're going to talk about climate today my guest is rob werner rob is the new hampshire state director for the league of conservation voters rob welcome back to capital close-up well thanks it's you're very kind well, I'm hardly and my wife to... often says I've and I agree, I have difficulty saying no to things as you as you can see. You know, that's it's been a problem <laughs> of mine my my entire life. When people say, My God, you must have lived nine lives, I say, No, I just don't know how to say no. Exactly. So, you know, we've just come through an election, and I know that the League of Conservation Voters is a nonpartisan a nonpartisan advocacy group that is working to embed environmental values into national, state, and local priorities. We're living at a time when climate change and the impacts of climate change are all around us, growing exponentially, and the effects of climate change are being felt in every part of the world and affecting all policymakers at a state level, at a local level, at a national level, and at a global level. The Pentagon thinks that climate change is our greatest security threat. And we're seeing, you know, huge numbers of people moving. We're seeing island nations at risk of rising waters. We're seeing the effect of rising water everywhere, including in New Hampshire. It's warmer all the time. There's less snow. New Hampshire's about to have, it seems like we've got the North Carolina climate coming pretty quickly. Yet in this last midterm election, with all of that going on, there was very little political discussion around climate change. People talked about inflation. People talked about abortion. People talked about um, immigration. But climatization didn't seem to make any of the top policy or issue polling or discussions that I heard anyway. And I'm curious about your perspective on that. What does that mean? And is it simply because humans just are unable to deal with things that appear to be moving uh, slowly or aren't as immediate as the price of uh, bread and milk? Well, a couple of things. I hear what you're saying about the polling when you rank concerns and issues. Inflation economy, uh, the Dobbs decision, certainly democracy and concern about democratic values and norms rose to a significant degree and i did think i do think it had an effect on the outcome of this election but polling will also tell you when you dig a little deeper that there's a wider acceptance of the impacts of climate change and there's very strong public support 
for making the investments that are the kind that were in the Inflation Reduction Act and the infrastructure bill. Those have wide support because I do think that all of what you mentioned in terms of visible impacts is having an effect, have had an effect, and people certainly do want something done about climate change. And they want, they realize that there are ways that we can approach this to be positive around economic growth and jobs and opportunity. I do think that connection has been made stronger in people's minds. But I think the, the immediate aspect of inflation and the pain that people were feeling about that, even in the face of a lot of other economic indicators that were that were and continue to be positive in terms of job growth, productivity. But that is, you know, inflation is something that hits you in the face every time you buy food or clothing or whatnot. So that's very understandable that people would be very concerned about that. It is curious, though, that even in earlier this year, there was polling that that indicated that, you know, people were very upset about the state of the economy in general. I even saw a poll that said, indicated that people thought that jobs are actually being lost, not gained, which is quite interesting. I saw another poll that only 30% of the respondents even knew that the infrastructure bill was passed that existed. And maybe it speaks to, in part, the overwhelming amount of information that hits our brains every single day and our attention spans and the fact that, you know, we just have so much to deal with in terms of information. And certainly, you know, the Dobbs decision, monumental in terms of people's perception of what government's role ought to be or not ought to be that certainly had a big effect it seemed that you know there was commentary about how you know this decision came down in the summer and it seemed the energy around it was dissipating i think that was proven not to be true actually and so i think in this mix oh and then the democracy aspect of you know all the publicity that the january 6th committee got uh, continues to receive, I think, had effect on people in raising those issues up. So when you take those three things, the Dobbs decision, inflation economy, and the democracy concerns, I think those, those are most immediate. But I don't think it means that people don't care about climate or understand it or accept it in terms of what's happening and want something done about it. Because clearly when you push on that aspect, you'll find, as I stated, wide support for action and investments. You know, what's interesting is the price of gasoline is something that government has very little control over. Yes. In some broad sense, whether it's Democratic administration or Republican administration, gasoline, the gasoline business, the petroleum business is essentially, it's a privately run business run by these mega corporations with very significant foreign entanglements that, that are somewhat immune 
to the pressures of the government. The federal government has a strategic petroleum reserve and it can release some strategic petroleum to try to put some pressure on the private companies that are pumping the gasoline and see see if something could be done. And, and the terrible thing is voters seem to always take the administration, whatever it is, to task over the price of gasoline as if the administration has something to do with it. Given the headlines, the gas prices made, because they went up, they're going down, we have a war. In Europe, the, Russia is a huge supplier of petroleum, and the war probably has more to do with the ability to of the oil companies to raise their prices. They're making billions of dollars of profits. They are immune to public pressure. And gas prices go up, gas prices go down, and they're now, you know, I just, I paid $3.79 a gallon. It's a lot better than $5 a gallon. It sure isn't $2.50 a gallon. And it it always strikes me that you would think that when gas prices get high, the connection between moving from a fossil fuel economy to a renewable energy economy, just on the sheer a con on the connection uh, between not paying those ga high gas prices and moving to an electrified economy that is powered by renewables would be something people would really start to connect. I, I went to an event the other day and ta I was talking to an old friend. She said, yeah, we put 35 solar panels on the house, got an electric car. And now when the gas prices go up, I smile. I don't know that that connection is is is, is being made by people. Are are you at the LCV? Well, I know that, that there's connection made. My understanding, I haven't. I have to say, I haven't looked at the the sales figures, but I, I certainly read articles and heard anecdotally that demand for electric vehicles increased as gas prices were increasing, and certainly interest in people looking at that option increased. And there's also been, there've been a lot of headlines about new EV charging initiatives, initiatives which right. we can, we can talk about because one of the things that whatever the voters have thought about climate change and wherever it stands in the public conscience, and let's, let's say, hopefully, that one of the reasons the issue is not a hot button issue in the same way that inflation war, threats to democracy are, and abortion are, is that there is more general acceptance that the world is, is going to move one way or another, because the markets are speaking, that the world is going to start moving and has started moving away mm -hmm. from a fossil fuel economy. One of the, you know, I want to talk about some of the domestic programs that are contributing to the progress that we hope will be made on climate. And, and we're also going to talk about the recent international conference on climate change, COP27, the 2022 United Nations meeting, an annual meeting to see if, if the United Nations nations countries can make some progress on climate change but domestically there have been two really important pieces of legislation at the federal level far reaching huge in terms of their economic impact and hopefully will have 
real impact on what is happening with climate because you know we we have a real challenge to to deal with this exponentially increasing heating of the earth rising seawaters melting ice caps which is posing a trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of threat not to mention national security implications so let's talk a little bit about the the first deal that got passed which by the way i don't think the president or the congress got a lot of got a lot of 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 recognition for i don't think people have really really thought through the implications of the bipartisan infrastructure deal which was a once in a generation investment in infrastructure and competitiveness republicans joined democrats to pass the bill talk can you talk to us a little bit about what was in the infrastructure bill that would help move us to a 21st century infrastructure well i mean it, there was so much in it that was certainly termed to be traditional as to what people think about infrastructure around roads and bridges and ports but certainly from a productivity point of view and an economic growth point of view the broadband investments to make sure that we are really connected everywhere particularly from rural areas that's going to make a big difference on the climate and energy side you had investments you have investments into into grid resilience modernizing the grid our electric grids which is something that has to happen to be able to accommodate a lot of new capacity around renewables whether that's solar offshore wind battery storage so forth so that's essential that you had investments in ev charging infrastructure and in new hampshire we are well behind our neighbors in terms of citing that infrastructure and building it out we are behind as a nation certainly around really having a structure of of electric vehicle charging that makes people comfortable i mean this range anxiety aspect is a real thing because we're so used to we, we have no anxiety about getting into a car and finding a gas station but eventually as this transition takes place over the next number of years we will be making this shift of petrol to electric and electric charging stations will become as numerous and as accessible as gas stations yeah in future decades so we're on that road but you know it's going to take a lot of attention and investment because we're talking about infrastructure that we're used to that you know is built up over 100 years so yeah we we need we're going to be undergoing in fairly short order a generational shift from infrastructure that was designed for fossil fuels for gas and gasoline huge investments in highways for cars monopolies by the petrol companies and you know talking about just ev vehicles we we know that the u.s market share of plug-in ev sales is one-third the size of the chinese ev market there's seven and a half billion dollars to build out a national network of ev chargers in the united states that's a critical investment and and as you say in new hampshire we're way behind but we've just had the first 
sort of blow for EV siting with some federal money spent by the state to figure out where to site the chargers. The next step is going to be to build uh, build the chargers. And there, you know, I know from personal experience that there's demand. I'm in the business these days of green energy and renewable energy. And we, you know, we just got a call from a ski area where whose patrons are eager for charging stations at the ski area so they can drive there when while they're skiing, charge their cars and then drive back home to relieve the anxiety. So, you know, we're going to we're going to put in EV chargers. And the other fascinating thing is that the transportation sector in the United States is now the largest single source of greenhouse mm-hmm. gas emissions. Right. And the infrastructure bill includes $39 billion of new investment to modernize transit. And in total, there's about $90 billion in funding for public transit over the next five years to replace gas guzzlers, including buses with clean zero emission vehicles. We got a game changer coming. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure that the public really understands the impact because it obviously we we didn't see it in time for the 2022 election, but we may very well see the beginning of the impact of the massive infrastructure bill by the time we're facing a presidential election in, in 2024. Well, I think that's true because I think with both the infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act, these significant government investments will spark additional private sector investment. Um, right. So. It's a yeah. pretty, it's a big deal. The numbers are kind of mind boggling when you think about the size, the size of the investments that the federal government is, is planning to make in terms of changing over our infrastructure. And uh, as you said, one of the really critical things is infrastructure resilience against the impact of climate change and extreme weather events, because we are seeing you know, 100-year floods every year. We're seeing hurricanes with much more force because the waters are warmer and the hurricanes the hurricanes are, are, are stronger. The, you know, we're seeing extreme weather events and changes, changes in weather patterns. So there is something like $50 billion in the infrastructure bill to protect against these extreme weather events, in addition to major investments in weatherization. It is the largest investment in the resilience of physical and natural systems in American history. This is stuff that is on the scale of the New Deal. I mean, this really is, in a way, the new New Deal. That's that's what we're dealing with. Well, and with the infrastructure bill, actually, I'm, I meant to say the with the Inflation Reduction Act, one of the interesting things, and I think this is where there's a lot of marketing and education that needs to take place, and that's the individual aspects of you know people being able to have access to money and tax credits to have heat pumps and efficient appliances and things like that. People that can you know you you can take effect in your own home. And I think that's that's significant. That's really going to help people. But I think we all have a, a big job ahead of us in terms of making sure people know about it. The, climate, the impacts of climate change are already so evident that they ought to be inescapable. Now, I will, I will just point out that I heard a snippet of a speech by a 
candidate for the United States Senate in Georgia. He's a former football player named Herschel Walker. And Herschel Walker is an interesting guy. He's said a lot of interesting things. And maybe he has had one too many, one too many tackles. But what I heard him talking about was blasting, blasting that green agenda. We don't need no green agenda. He said, he said, what we need is gas guzzling cars with those good emissions. That's what we that's what we need. And the crowd in Georgia gave him a big cheer. Um, is there is there some geographical or political reason why people should be cheering about gas guzzlers and, and emissions in Georgia? Is, is it the particular crowd? Is it ideologic? What kind of barrier to understanding about the benefits, you know, because actually a, a new economy carries with it new jobs. It carries with it lots of new jobs, new prosperity, new opportunities, lower health costs, um, enormous benefits for everybody. Um, what What's the way, you think, um, and and to to reach people who see the green agenda as some kind of left wing, tutti frutti, frou frou thing. We don't need none of that. We just need gas guzzlers and good emissions. Well, Tim, interesting. I think part of it goes deeper than sort of the surface, and I think a there's so many things in our society that I think are generally affected by the attitude of folks or or the trust in institutions i'd say and as trust in institutions has eroded including the government um people become skeptical about a lot of things i mean one of the things that i i think i read the other day i was reminded of the day that i think in the in the early to mid 60s this question was asked, does the government do the right thing most of the time? And at that time in history, we had 70% of the people saying, yeah, I think they do. Well, because of all the things that have happened over the decades and so forth, I think there's been a, an erosion of trust in so many institutions. So I got to think at a deeper level, um, you know, that has an effect. And it's, I think it, it, sort of goes to this aspect of the green economy and making these investments. What does it mean to me? Why should I care about it as a person? What's my effect? I mean, is it really going to help me? And I think that's where I think there's an opportunity maybe to build a bit more back around the efficacy of government and collective action around things. Well, why should I care about it? Is it really going to affect me? positively. And if we can prove that it does, and people can see that, um, then maybe that will go some way towards um, healing some of that. So I do think there's a deeper aspect of that. So um, can I, can I, let me interrupt you for a second. Yeah. Let's, I just want to, because that you sparked a thought. Um, here in New Hampshire, we don't i still i think we still don't have a final tally of the um house of representatives in new That's hampshire correct. we don't um there are still recounts going on and 
um, at the, it, it appears that we may have a, there's still a possibility that we'll have an evenly divided house of representatives that not, not, not so in the executive council, not so in the Senate, but, but something went on in, in, in this election to um, help Democrats at the local level um, in, in terms of the house of representatives elections. Yet in New Hampshire, we've got a governor who um, seems um, not uh, overly friendly to um, progressive action on climate change. Um, we've got serious uh, doubters still in places of authority um, in New Hampshire. And New Hampshire is behind all the other states in New England. It, it, there's a significant donut hole that we fall into when it comes to action on um, moving to a 21st century green economy and adopting the kind of now reasonable measures that our neighbors are, are adopting. And I won't go through the legion of eccentric, just say no um, approach, you know, approaches that New Hampshire has taken to all kinds of things. But how do you and the LCV deal right here at home with these issues, which are obviously they're 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 of global importance um you got to act you can think globally and act locally so how how are you meeting the challenges of educating um people in new hampshire and lawmakers about the importance of the issues that we've been talking about well i mean as you point out we we do get involved with elections and we were very involved in federal elections as well as state elections we do have a involvement financially and organizationally here on the state level. We helped a lot of candidates. Um, unfortunately, you know, with the Executive Council and State Senate, I think the um, folks who have the are hands on the levers of power in terms of gerrymandering those districts um, did a good job <laughs> in terms mm -hmm. of making it difficult for Democrats to prevail. But the House, you know, it's it's because it's so large, because you're talking about elections that are literally decided by single, you know, votes I can count on my hand. Um, these trends have a more pronounced effect in the House. We've seen it before. Um, so I do think that there was a bit of a cross cross pressure in terms of what was going on federally the governor being reelected again by you know over 55 percent i think had an effect down ticket on state races mm -hmm. he's sort of a an you know he, he's a he's a special case in some ways in terms of his popularity his durability and his ability to i think transfer some of that down through the down ticket races um but you know we, so we work on elections we continually work with allies like Clean Energy New Hampshire and groups, local chambers. I do think there's more and more folks in the business community. Um, and even I'd say uh, maybe some changing attitudes with the Business and Industry Association as, as we are looking forward to um, a new economy and what that can mean for, for New Hampshire. Um, you know, at some point, 
economic opportunity, jobs, cost, relative cost of renewables versus traditional energy sources, um, that will have an effect. I mean, there's an old saying that, you know, we didn't leave the Stone Age because we ran out of rocks. Uh, yeah, we better. learned how to do things better, <laughs> more efficiently. Could, it sounds like something we could apply to New Hampshire. We didn't, That's right. We're not going to leave the Stone Age because we run out of rack, rocks. But if Eversource and Unitil keep on raising the electricity rates, um, for their generally conventionally produced city, well, people may just find it economically feasible to go for solar, um, geothermal, wind, and, and other renewables. And, and, you know, ultimately, if pocketbook rules, um, there's nothing like, you know, a 60% increase in your ele electricity rate to make you think twice about whether you want to keep on paying for oil or maybe it's time to take a look at the return on investment on investing in something renewable. Well, I, I hope spring's eternal, um, and nobody likes to think about you know the, the what's happened with our electricity prices um, in the long long term. Although it's painful, um, it may force the kind of change that. Um, nothing that government otherwise in New Hampshire is interested in doing because we believe, you know, in small government in New Hampshire. We don't, we, at least that's what we say anyway. Well, it's interesting you say that because now I, I'm quite interested to see how this all plays out given the election returns and the dynamics, particularly in the House. But you might recall that Representative Vose and others talked about how this coming session was going to be the year of biomass and how all of a sudden there's there's interest in subsidizing biomass. But I thought these folks were small government Republicans who didn't like subsidies, but all of a sudden they seem to like subsidies in certain circumstances. So I, I want to press them a bit more on that in terms of, you know, where's the philosophical continuity here in terms of what you believe to be the role of the market versus the role of government, because it seems very selective, at least in their mind, but we'll see how that shakes out over the session. So just before before we move to the global level, um, we talked a bit about the Infrastructure and Investment and Jobs Act. That was a $1.2 trillion bill. And its counterpart, or it, the, the, the next big news, was the Inflation Reduction Act. And, and by the way, in some of our other shows, uh, when we have a conservative um, um, uh, guests or or panel panel members, they just go on and on and on about the title of the Inflation Reduction Act, saying, oh, "I don't know why it was called the Inflation Reduction Act." So, and I say, look, you know, naming naming things in Congress is 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 always a piece of work. You can't imagine the time wasted time that staffers spend thinking up some clever names for the act. I want to give the administration credit for not bothering to come up with a really clever name for this act, but to come up with a name that would help it get passed on reconciliation instead of through the normal process, because it couldn't get passed through the normal process. It had to get passed as a piece of budgetary stuff through what's called reconciliation. So they picked a name which would help it do that. Um, and and I don't think anybody on the conservative side wants to recognize that. But 
I digress. The IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, includes $369 billion for climate and energy provisions and will contribute to reducing carbon emissions um, from uh, the 2005 levels by approximately 40% by 2030. Uh, by accelerating decarbonization of electricity production and other carbon intensive sectors this is this is landmark stuff people this is this is unheard of when you put together the uh, investments in the infrastructure act and the investments in the inflation uh, reduction act um it's it it's huge uh, and over the next decade is going to make an enormous difference at least in our domestic picture for energy, energy production, energy distribution, um, and the use of energy uh, in all sectors. Absolutely. There's no question about the significance of these investments. And again, we've talked about it before, how this is going to leverage ever more private investment, because I think, you know, the way the market is working along with these investments, you know, government is traditionally and in other cases, made large investments. Um, and there's all sorts of spin-off aspects of that. I mean, look at the space program. Look at the investments sure. that we made as a government in the space program and the myriad of things that came out of those uh, investments that people weren't even thinking about, had no right. idea about. So I'm really excited about how that's going to play out over time. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of the investments that are really critical are um, tax credits available for buying electric vehicles, an investment tax credit for uh, uh, businesses if they uh, and others who put, say, solar on, on their homes. That's a 30% tax credit. Uh, there are various bump-ups available. There's a production tax credit available for people who are building large-scale renewable energy farms, which are huge incentives for the <laughs> private private market. Huge incentives. Um, you could call them subsidies, call them incentives, but it's absolutely critical. That the discussion about the infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act and the, I don't I don't, I, I haven't totaled it all up, but it's it's like six or seven hundred billion dollars. There's some, it's a huge number of investment over the next 10 years that that we're going to make is a backdrop for what happened at the annual COP27 conference. Um, I don't, you weren't in Egypt this year for that, right? No, I was there. You were there. Talk to us about it. Tell us about your experience and give us the good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's a spaghetti Western, isn't it? So it is, the, it's, a, it's a spaghetti Western from Sharm El Sheikh. That's there's, right. Rob, there's Rob Werner walking down the main street <laughs> to Sharm El Sheikh with his sidearm strapped to strapped to his thigh, ready ready to do battle with 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 the bad yeah, climate. So, um, yes, I was there as part of a delegation from a group called ICLI which uh, people may not know the acronym, but it's <laughs> the International a, that... Council for Local Energy Initiatives. So this is an organization that's been around for many years. Mm -hmm. There's a uh, arm of it in the United States called ICLA USA. I was part of a delegation along with eight other folks who were mayors, uh, who are mayors, uh, uh, sustainability directors at a university, 
um, county commissioners, and so forth, folks that are involved in government in some or in civil society that are working at the local level um, oh. around yeah. uh, implementing um, climate change and clean energy aspects, because we strongly feel that um, no matter what the goals are, whether international, national, state, the action really takes place at the local level. The implementation, uh, implementation will take place at the local level. Um, and we see that happening in New Hampshire. We see that happening uh, certainly around the country. So um, yes, I was there for the second week. Um, the good, um, interesting. You know, the best um, sort of aspect that came out of COP27, I think the most significant positive uh, um, development was an agreement around a fund, creation of a fund to address the whole concept of loss and damage. And some people have called that, you know, reparations in some aspect, but really what it has to do is uh, with, with is how are the wealthy nations, the bigger biggest emitters, going to assist the nations and populations that are most affected, which tend to be the most vulnerable and populations that don't have the resources to respond to the effects of climate change and the impacts of climate change. And for many years, developed nations, including the United States, have been very resistant to go down this road. And it really has to do with sort of the general liability aspect or concept of you know, being held responsible legally. And what, does, what are all the implications of that? Uh, on a global stage. But um, I think finally the the argument uh, carried the day at least for the creation of a fund structurally. Now the real work begins, okay, you've created a fund, you've created a mechanism, how are you going to create, how are you actually going to provide the money? And the serious discussions are going to really begin to happen next year in the first quarter, and then the run-up to COP28, which is going to be in the United Arab, Arab Emirates at the end of next year. So that's the biggest thing that came out of it. The other thing that was really significant that just, came out I, of it, yes. Can I just ask you, sure. um, what caused a change in the United States position? Because the United States had been a holdout on this fund or the creation of a fund or the idea of helping, let's say, a small island nation in the Pacific with, mm -hmm. with you know, with, with 20,000 people whose houses are rapidly going underwater. Um, and what changed the position for the United States? And why, why should American people spend any money on helping these little nations? What's in it for us? Well, I think largely it was um, a question of credibility. On the one hand, we were, you know, we've we've gained incredibility in the global community because of what we passed in Congress, mm -hmm. because we're able to bring those practical aspects to an international gathering. Because you, it's very hard to argue to convince nations to do something difficult if you yourself, as a nation, are not doing it. So our our commitment with these with this massive investment spoke volumes this year at COP, along with our change in attitude towards assisting the smaller, poorer countries uh, who are 
low emitters by comparison to countries like the United States and other industrialized Western countries. Yeah, but you know, I also think there's some real politic here and self-interest because we know, and this is, you pointed out that the Pentagon is very interested in climate change and impacts because climate change is, is an accelerant to, to instability around the globe. And that has a national security implications for us. Right. Um, and I think many Western nations. Yep. Um, and I think there's an element of self-interest in that in terms of looking ahead uh, and trying to be a good partner to see if we can, you know, forestall yep. some of this. So. so what else happened at COP27? We have about two. Well, one of the things that's interesting, it didn't even, we, it didn't happen in, 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 it didn't happen on the African continent. That was the fact that Joe Biden and, um, uh, and the president of China met for three hours right. in the Philippines. Yep. And, you know, we've kept these channels open. Uh, there's some very significant uh, high-level uh, connections that have maintained, even in the face of all the other difficulties that we face with China in our relationship. But I think we've gotten to hopefully to a point where let's get back to the table to see what we can work together on around climate change and clean energy adoption, regardless of what other else uh, other things are happening. Hmm. with Taiwan or whatnot. So very, I do think that important. was significant, very significant. Yeah, yeah that's really important. So. Um, you know, I hadn't really connected uh, the the meeting between Biden and Xi to yeah. the COP conference, but uh, Biden Biden stopped off and then, you know, there went went to the Philippines. So that, that was an important meeting. Well, I went to an event at the Chinese Pavilion. Aha. Uh -huh. A couple of them, actually. It's quite interesting. Um, you know, they, they, it's a, it's a double side story, as you know, I mean, on the one hand, they are making huge investments in renewables and they're there and they're still building cold fire. Power plants. So, you know. <laughs> it's, it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> um, and so. one, of the, one of the things that didn't come out of COP was some real movement towards um, the necessary reduction in emissions to reach the kinds of uh, goals that that scientists have said are so important and well that is part of the bad i mean you know there was a lot of discussion about um are we going to adhere to the 1.5 centigrade goal around emissions and not going above that compared to industrial you know, pre-industrial levels that was kept um that was part of the glasgow uh agreement um but you're right in that you know, it wasn't until last year's conference that fossil fuels were even mentioned. Uh, and the role we talked about reducing emissions. But at the end of the day, there were nations that pushed against wording around basically weaning us off of fossil fuels in a, you know, <laughs> manner. The, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Rob <laughs> Werner. Uh, New Hampshire State Director of the League of Conservation Voters, thanks for catching up with us. We'll speak to you again soon.